Hello, and welcome to Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for every year of the 20th century. I'm Sandra Newman, and I'm here with my co-host, Catherine Nichols. And today we're going to talk about The Women of Brewster Place from 1982 by Gloria Naylor. It's a book of length short stories about seven very different black women living in decaying rented houses in an urban neighborhood. Directly emotional and deeply political, The Women of Brewster Place has a complex structure and a radical focus not only on the lives of black women, but on the relationships between black women. Um, And here to talk to us about it is Tyrese Coleman. She is a writer, wife, mother, and attorney, and her debut collection of not-quite-fictional stories or not-really non-fictional essays, How to Sit, was published in 2018 by Mason Jar Press and nominated for a 2019 Pen Open Book Award. Um, and I just want to say it's phenomenal, and there will be a link to that in, on the site. Um, and her work has also appeared in Best American Essays 2018 and 2016, and has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. So welcome to Tyrese. So Tyrese, thank you so much for joining us. So I wanted to start by just asking what your relationship to this book is and um what i mean you you gave us several several options when we were talking about what books we would do in our episode with you but um but i'm curious about why why this was one of those books i this is one of those books that i had always known about from like i mean it came out in the 80s early 80s and i remember seeing the mini series when i was a kid and um, it has always been in my mind, but it was a book that I actually had not read until I was an adult. And so that gap between seeing something on television that sort of reminded you of like almost like a bygone era of like Black womanhood, there was a lot of things going on in the 80s in terms of like... Uh, Black womanhood, Black beauty, um, things of that nature that I recall from my childhood. And then reading this book as an adult and finally making those connections um, was something that was very meaningful to me when I was able to to make that happen. Yeah. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, I, I have been contemplating sort of as I'm now in my forties and I'm thinking about all the different ways in which I express my womanhood and my, and specifically being a black woman. Um, and then also seeing the ways in which other writers are approaching the sort of complicated world (laughs) that we kind of live in. Um, I just, I just, I don't know. I just feel like this book is like, ever-present and evergreen in a lot of ways, especially, yeah. you know, as I said, that I've read this as an adult and it feels it feels so vibrant and, like, almost as if it could be applicable to 2021. So so that's, that's why I was drawn to this and why I thought it would be a good one to talk about. I also felt like it was remarkably fresh and applicable to our own time. I, I thought that some of the the conflicts among the characters and the things that they were facing either together or apart, sorry, that's maybe getting too abstract. I think the thing that I specifically mean is the relationship 
that Kiswana had as somebody who was trying to come from a bourgeois circumstance into this building where there's all of these different people, but the stories are mostly about the women who are living there. And she personally doesn't have more money than them, but she does have this different history where mm-hmm. she has she has access to money through her family. She can borrow money if she needs to. And her understanding of what it means to organize a community or to be part of a community is so different than the other women's and that she thinks of organizing as sort of um, something that she's like coming in from the outside to do. And she doesn't want to think she's better than them or separate from them, Uh but they are already organized and they are already sharing resources and organizing against the threats in their lives. Uh Yeah. I just, I just thought that the, the way that, that it showed all of those networks of um, interdependence and support that were already in place. Yeah, I, you know, I was reading Kiswana again and realizing Kiswana is Gen, what is it, Gen Z? Uh, she is, she is though, she is essentially just like those kids that I like see online or, uh, you know, in person, the ones who want to protest, who, um, but who also have very strict ideas about what it means to be Black and what it means to be part of the Black community that are very different than the, the people in my generation. And the whole scene where she's having that conversation with her or that argument with her mother just felt like, obviously, you know, on, on the surface, it's just the, it's, a, it's an argument between a mother and a daughter, but it's an argument between two different generations that I feel has, is, is still the same argument that's happening today. Like a lot of the kids who are um, rightfully and righteously <laughs> out there protesting and, and really um, looking to revolutionize and create revolution in this country and wanting to shake up the system. And then, you know, they are the Kiswanas, right? And then the mother, her mom, uh, is is that old sort of guard the people the black folks who voted for Biden <laughs> who look for who yeah. who are saying work work within the system work work in the sm- in the ways in which we can make uh, you know the incremental change that we have done so have done so far throughout you know history and so that those still those forces are still fighting against one another even to this day and probably will be until, you know, almost the end of time, there's always going to be a younger set of individuals who still within their, their nugget of privilege, because every new generation has a new nugget of privilege, right. That they are working within. Um, And yet they, they want to revamp, revise, you know, reorganize, break down the, the the structure, break down the whole system um, to like the shock and horror of everyone who's like, I've gone through that and that is just not the way. So yeah, I mean, it just feels, you know, especially, you know, so before when I read this, it was before um, this, the summer of 2020. So 
you know, now after the summer of 2020, it, it feels even more, you know, pressing, even more um, relatable in that way. Definitely. Yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, one of the great things about the book is it doesn't really take a side between those two characters. It lets them both have their own their own form of heroism, I think. Um, and, and I think it, do, it does, like, it actually makes heroes of pretty much all of the women in the book, which is a move that I, I think it's almost lost to us that we would be able to elevate all of the voice, elevate all of the voices and give them so much dignity um, within a narrative. Um, th- and this is something like I, I was reading it and thinking like how much of its time it felt and how it, f- it felt like other books of that time. Um, thinking of like, not just the color purple, but also um, for some reason, like, and I haven't read her in, in years and years, but Marge Piercy's books that I, I used to read when I was really young and actually loved, even though they're much trashier than this book. Um, and, and, you know, for colored girls as well. The mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think this goes back to what I was saying about what I feel like was happening in that time period, because I recall growing up, uh, not, you know, obviously I wasn't like reading Women of Bruce Wayne or Alice Walker at like, you know, as a small child. But I remember um, watching on television the Miss Black, um, Black America pageants and um, watching and, you know, reading Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine and Essence and all of those um all of the ways in which black beauty and black women were um, th- were was being marketed to me as a, as a small child. And so I, I grew up with the sense of um, feeling like black women were like, they were like heroes in a way, like a lot mm-hmm. of the things that I um, consumed as a child because, and I, and it's weird to think about now because um I don't know if it was a conscious thing that was happening, but, you know, I watched um, The Wiz and I watched a lot of um, a lot of television, a lot of movies, a lot of entertainment books, things of that nature that was geared specifically to the black community. And I couldn't tell you, I didn't know who Walt Whitman was until I went to grad school. I didn't know who who any of these. I had no idea who any of these uh, white writers were, but I could you know, talk to you about Toni Morrison. I could talk to you about, um, you know, any any Black female writer that my mother or that other people in my home were reading when I was a child. I could speak up about them, you know, but I had no idea about this white canon, about this, you know. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me because I had all, that you mentioned that because I had that's just sort of the way that I always perceived a lot of the literature that I was reading growing up. Okay. That's, that's just too interesting. And I've got to ask, even though we might be <laughs> cutting it out when you, when you started reading like the white canon, how did it strike you? Um, it's funny because I, I started reading Southern white writers mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the first writers I started reading was Eudora Welty. And this is, and 
it, it, it was so weird to me because I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I get it. But see, I grew up in the South. So it's, it wasn't, it wasn't as if like what I was reading, especially with Southern writers felt like off to me because it mm-hmm. felt very relatable to what I knew um, and the people that I knew in the world that I knew and like the relationships that I knew between black and white people. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't off to me. I'll tell you when I really started thinking about like, what is this was when I picked up Ernest Hemingway <laughs> and I was like, I, I, <laughs> I was like, I have to see why everybody like, you know, is always talking about this guy. And, um, and I was just like, this is not, I mean, <laughs> I hate to just take it, but I hate to put it in the bearish terms. I'm like, this is just like regular old white guy kind of like, it wasn't <laughs> anything that I was just so like, uh, impressed by, but it could also be because so many people have already like used his style and, and picked up things from him. And he's such, you know, so prolific and out there. And I guess I was just expecting more. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of how I felt. Another thing about, about Hemingway, and I want to actually tie it to, um, to this book also, um, is that in order to strip down to these sort of bare, these bare sentences, this kind of empty minimalist way that he writes is you have to not say they're talking about an abortion. You have to have everyone understand that implicitly, which means you have to bring in a ton of cultural knowledge to reading it, that he's not going to tell you what his codes are. You just have to know them, which a very white guy move. And this book is not that this book is like, I'm going to tell you that we're talking about abortion I'm going to tell you that we're talking about rape. All of the the things that are happening to these characters, you don't need to be in this world to understand exactly why everything matters and who it matters to. Mm-hmm. So I, it's interesting that you say that, you know, you were coming to this book from having spent so much time with all of the other books that it's in conversation with and all of these pictures of black womanhood whether actual, you know, physical pictures in magazines or uh, portraits within stories. But I think, I guess, just to talk about the the books that we've been talking about in this podcast, um, we, we talked about the play, the James Baldwin play, uh, Blues for Mr. Charlie, which is an Emmett Till story, but it really erases Black womanhood. Oh. Um, and it really is telling a story focused on men. And the women are kind of there um, as like love objects, but also, you know, as like motives for doing things. But I really think that there is a shift toward focusing fully on these women, focusing fully on the amount that they're doing for each other to protect each other and to bear witness to each other's lives. And part of that is describing their lives in a way that's accessible to outsiders as well as insiders. Uh That really struck me about how it was, how it was put together and how much the, the only thing that I think the book was really judgmental about from one of its characters was Kiswana's desire to be independent and thinking that dignity would come from not accepting help. Whereas I think all the other characters understanding that help was drawing you into the community and that you would be, you would find a way to help in turn, as opposed to thinking that there's some dignity in being removed. Yeah, I think I think part of that 
openness to be raw in terms of like what is happening on the page is I think to dispel sort of the mystery around the lives of women. Like, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, about um, the, the, the Baldwin play, I, I think part of what happens when, uh, when men write about women is that they're writing from a place that they, at least back then, really probably had no concrete basis for. Like the, the lives are different. The lives are, you know, the interior lives of women is something that I don't know whether or not a man in the 70s or 60s or 80s would have been able to articulate with the enough knowledge. I don't know, maybe that sounds bad, but, <laughs> and I think, and I, and I think that, um, and I think that women tend to, um, I think part of the thing about this book that I find that I connect with is the, um, like the, un, the, un, the fact that it's, that all of these things are described in a way that doesn't feel shameful. Like, yeah. it's just these, this is, this is the way in which we live our lives in which we, you know, deal with uh, the issue of having a man who is resentful of you and resentful of the fact that you got pregnant, even though he participated in that <laughs> and resentful of the fact that uh, you're working and taking care of the family when he can't. And how do you deal with that? Well, I, you deal with that by you by getting an abortion, unfortunately. And you deal with your, your emotions of having this abortion in this way. And I think that if there wasn't so much of, um, you know, this unashamed revealing of what is happening on the page, um, then I think you would lose the, the connection that you get between the characters because uh, there's so much love between all of these women even when they hate one another, there's still, there's still so much love. And I think if, if we were, if you were using sort of this male, and I kind of, I really do feel like the approach of uh, the Hemingway's approach is so male in, in the sense of that it, it removes emotion by removing those things that those clear cut uh, express things that are happening on the page. And um and that's not something you're able to do when you're writing a story that is about women and their connection with one another and their love for one another. And it reminds me of what um, Maddie says about uh, the relationship between um, Lorraine and Teresa and how, um, you know, she's loved other women more, you know, more so women have done things for her and loved her back and she's done things for women and loved them back in ways that in which you know that has never happened with men and that it you know the relationship between Lorraine and Teresa what's the difference between that and that question um that's in the air between what's the difference between romantic love and and friendship love and familiar love that these women share amongst one another. And I think if it was just bare bones prose, that that love would not be available to, to, to be viewed on the page, in, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I, I, I strongly know. agree. And, and I also think that, that 
that kind of Hemingway approach, which, as as you mentioned, is spread through American literature in particular, is is really kind of false, and and it's mm-hmm. a sh- it's a shortcut. It it makes the reader do the work of imagining an emotion, which it's like, and this is sort of what Catherine was saying, will necessarily be the most trite version of the emotion, because if you're not specifying it or talking about it, then the reader supplies the emotion for you. And that's an emotion that's familiar from other literature of the kind and is Mm -hmm. kind of traded among these authors and is inevitably a little bit falsified. Right. Um, Yeah, it's it's like, how can you how can you imagine what it is that is happening in this relationship if you've never been in this relationship? So you're going to imagine what's, what's the easiest thing for you. Yeah. I totally yeah. agree agree with that. Well, I thought one thing that was very subtle and kind of what you were saying about the love amongst friends versus the love um, between romantic partners is that even when both the romantic partners are women, um, the love is not really as good. Like there's more, <laughs> judgment and friction between them it's not that they aren't trying to support each other it's that they aren't quite able to be what each other needs the way that the friendship loves are like it's almost easier to see someone and to see what they're really about and what they're really doing if um you're not also trying to sleep with them in this book at least this is my sense that the um that the bond even between it's Lorraine, right? And Ben, the friendship. Yeah, Lorraine. Yeah, yes. so there's that mm-hmm. friendship bond that they have where they're able to see each other because her partner is a woman, that that's the person that she has the same kind of conflict the other characters are having with their male partners. And then she has more of like a, a friendship bond with Ben. Well, I think I, I looked at it as though... Lorraine's relationship was been with Ben was them fulfilling a more a, a family need like because he lost his daughter who she reminds him of and she lost her family connection and sh- and she says it in the book that he that you know she lost her father and I think that that's what she's looking for with Ben more so than friendship um at yeah least that was my interpretation of it no, I agree. I think that the the version of, I, I totally agree with you. And I think the version of friendship in this book is much richer than just a, like it's closer to a family level of friendship. Mm-hmm. Like the the bond between Maddie and um, it's Miss Eva, right? The the one who gives yeah. her the house. Yeah. That's yes. like, that's officially friendship, but it's, that's much more of a family bond. And then there's continuity in those bonds, even though they're not blood bonds, they're, they're, technically friendship, but I guess that's, that's what I mean about the strength of those bonds, whether you call them family or friendship, it's so much more, it's so much richer in some ways than any of the romantic pairings, even though there's a lot of erotic joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard, I think, because the only thing that we have to compare to, I mean, I don't think any of the romantic relationships are that um, functional so that was our first episode about the women of Brewster Place and I'd like to once again thank Tyrese Coleman and remind you to take a look at her book How to Sit Um, and also we would like to thank 
as always, Adam Baer for our theme music and LitHub for hosting us. And if you want to talk to us, you can always reach us on Twitter at LitCenturyPod or on email at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com.